All right, good evening, everybody. Welcome to Wednesday night. We're glad you're here. Genesis 41 is what you want. On that couple's uh, dinner where they're going to the Italian place, I don't know whose idea that was to go Italian. But I heard if you pay an extra $5 a couple, you get two extra raviolis. So just, just in case you wanted to know, that's the, it's on the secret menu. <laughs> All right, Genesis 41. We're going to see Joseph's dreams come true tonight, at least in part. And as we look at his dreams and we look at how God is weaving a tapestry together, I think there's a lot of application for our lives tonight, wherever you may find yourself tonight in terms of just looking at life's circumstances and the ups and downs of life. We know that at age 17, Joseph uh, was sold into slavery and the time that he stands before Pharaoh, he's 30 years old. So you have 13 years in there. And, you know, from 17 to 30, we'd probably say that those are the best years of our lives in terms of our health, our physical capabilities, and all of that kind of stuff. It's, it's usually when we actually chart a course for life. Most of the time, you finish up high school 17, 18, you go off to college, or you get some career training, and and you kind of catapult into life, and you begin to, you know, hit your prime somewhere in there. And uh, Joseph spent a lot of that time in prison, a lot of that time in, you know, situations that were not the best. But he had been given a couple of dreams by God, and these dreams were always in his heart, and they seemed to be something that he always held on to. And when I say Joseph's dreams, I'm not talking about our dreams. Like when people say to you, just dream big dreams, Johnny. You'll play for the Lakers one day and Johnny's four foot nine. Probably not going to happen. But the dreams that were put in, in Joseph's heart were dreams from God. They were directly from, from God. And I would just say, just from a big picture standpoint, if you line up your dreams with God, God's dreams, or if your dreams are God's dreams for your life, they will come to pass. If you line up your vision for your life with God's vision, if his will becomes your will, then you will get your will, if it's his will. Amen? So one of the keys to life is to understand what God's will is and walk in it, because then you'll know that it's going to come to pass. Now let's go ahead and pray. Father, we just are so grateful for the Bible. It's alive, it's powerful, it's sharp, it's encouraging, it illuminates. There's so many things that we have tonight as we uh, sit before our Bibles. And Lord, we, when we sit before our Bibles, it's, a, it's as if we are sitting at your feet because we know you have spoken. This is your word. And we're not to mess with it. We're not to add or take away from it. We're to preach it. Second Timothy 2 says we're to preach it straight. We're to preach it true. And it will be an encouragement for the church. And, and I pray that it will do just that tonight. Draw us ever closer to you. Increase our faith tonight. Do what you want to do in each life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the Song of Ascents, Psalm 126, when the Lord brought back the, captives, uh, the captive ones of Zion, they said these words, Psalm 126, verse 1, it says, We were like those who dream." Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Well, I think Joseph at some point in his life could look back and I think it was probably at the point when he stood before the Pharaoh and he was riding in the second chariot and become 
the prime minister or the viceroy of Egypt, that he could probably mouth the words of Psalm 126. It's like I'm in a dream. It's like all of a sudden I've gone from the pit to the pinnacle, from the prison to the palace, however you would best say it. I think he could say it's like I'm in a dream, or maybe he could say it's like I'm in my dream. Because his original dream was that his family members would bow down to him. And he had had those dreams, and he had shared those dreams, and God was weaving together a tapestry, and he went 13 years of difficulty, slavery, false imprisonment, you name it, to this time when he's going to be elevated into the palace. And when he looked back, I'm sure he had to have a couple of moments like, wow, is this really real? Is this really happening to me? This is the account, it's found in Psalm, excuse me, not Psalm, but Genesis 41. Genesis 41, so let's pick it up. Genesis 41, and we pick it up in verse 1. Genesis 41, verse 1. Now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he was standing by the Nile. If you look back for a second in uh, chapter 40, you look at verse 21, it says, he restored the chief cupbearer to his office and put the cup into the Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. Then just keep reading. No, No chapter breaks in your original Bible. Now it happened at the end of two full years. What's the end of two full years pointing to? Well, the time that the chief cupbearer was restored back to his office. And two full years went by and he had forgotten about Joseph. Remember at the end of last message, we were talking about the fact that the chief cupbearer probably excitedly said, Joseph, I'll never forget you, bro. You've been so great to me. As soon as I get up there, no doubt about it, I will let the big guy know what a fabulous dude you are. But then two full years went by, and he waited, and he waited, and he waited some more. But at the end of those two full years, once again, there is a dream that occurs, and now it's going to be Pharaoh having a dream. In the book of Genesis and the life of Joseph, and we've mentioned the the book of Daniel and in his life, dreams play a prominent role. Someone has categorized dreams as, quote, projections of subconscious fears or desires. Sometimes you have a dream and you're like, that was so bizarre, Sometimes dreams have seven different things coming all together at once, and you're like, what in the world was going on there? And somebody once said, our dreams are projections of subconscious fears. Sometimes we have dreams where we fall. You ever had a dream where you fall? You're like, ah! And then you wake up. Man. Sometimes I just say, I'm glad that was a dream. And then there's other dreams that you have, you're like, oh, darn, why did I wake up right there? I wanted to see what was going to happen. I was playing for the Dodgers, shortstop, batting third, my dream. Well, Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he was standing by the Nile. Now, the Pharaoh was the top man in Egypt. He was the, probably the most powerful leader in all the world at the time, and But, you know, even though the Egyptians said that the Pharaoh was a god, uh, he was no god, he was a man. And Pharaoh had a dream, and this is what's going to connect now Joseph and his whole situation 
to what's going on in terms of uh, the big picture. Pharaoh's dream will catapult Joseph. Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he was standing by the Nile. It was not unusual for the Pharaoh to be standing by the Nile, by the way. If you study the book of Exodus, you find out that the Pharaoh regularly went down to the waters of the Nile. Some believe that he went down to the waters of the Nile to pray or connect with the God or to bless the waters or to get a blessing from the Nile God. If you do a little homework on the Nile River, it's quite interesting. The Nile is an ex extremely long river and it covers a lot of territory. And it is something that um, in the ancient world, uh, I was reading a commentary on Exodus as we go through Exodus on Thursday mornings and the Egyptians used to gather at the Nile and they would sing hymns to the Nile River. And they, they would gather together and sing tombs to the Nile, or tunes to the Nile, <laughs> tombs, that's probably fitting as well. But anyway, and so the, the, the Pharaoh would come down to these waters regularly. It's at the waters of the, of the Nile that Moses is discovered by the Egyptian uh, daughter of the Pharaoh, and he's rescued from the waters. And so here is this dream. So he's dreaming something that probably wouldn't be unusual for him. And Exodus 7.15 says that Moses met Pharaoh at the waters. God said to him, go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water and station yourself to meet him on the bank of the Nile. And you shall take in your hand the staff that was turned into a serpent. So apparently Pharaoh habitually went to the river for washing or for blessing or some religious rite. Three times in the book of Exodus, Moses meets the Pharaoh by the Nile River. Exodus 7.15, if you're interested, 8.20 and 9.13. The Nile was honored by the Egyptians as their supreme deity. Pharaoh went out to the waters to bathe and to be empowered. Pharaoh's bath in the Nile was a sacred Egyptian rite, says one writer, connected to Pharaoh's claim of divinity. Because the Nile was so essential to the life and prosperity of Egypt, it was personified as a god called either Happy or Hoppy. Yes, it's true. H-A-P-I or H-O-P-I. And the frog plague, uh, the frogs seem to be connected also to this god, Hoppy. And somehow that is very fitting, isn't it? And if John the Beloved would he was here, we'd have him do a rivet sound right now because he's really good at it. <laughs> but he's not. So he was coming down. Now, remember when God brought the, uh, the plagues on Egypt, he brought a plague on the Nile, and he turned the Nile to what? To blood. And it was as if God was saying, your God that you trust in so much has just been killed. I killed him. He just turned into blood. All ten plagues were against the false gods and goddesses, of Egypt and lo as the dream continues from the Nile verse 2 there came up seven cows sleek and fat and they grazed in the marsh grass now if you look at pictures of the Nile you can even see cows there today and the cows can be grazing by the side of the river and sometimes they're a little bit submerged to get relief from the warm weather or even to escape the flies and so again this would be not an unusual thing that Pharaoh might dream about because he was always there but what he sees is he sees seven cows. The number is interesting. Seven cows uh, in Pharaoh's dream. And they, they're emerging in some way from the river. Cows were also commonplace in Egypt. And these seven cows are described as sleek and fat. If you have an ESV, it calls them attractive and plump. And all God's people said, 
Amen. The New King James calls them fine-looking and fat. And the King James, the Old King James, calls them well-favored kind and fat-fleshed. So there you go. Since the King James was written in 1611, I think we can excuse the fact that it was put that way. Then behold, seven other cows, Pharaoh's dreaming, came up after them from the Nile, and these were ugly and gaunt. And they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. So here's Pharaoh's dream, and there's cows everywhere. The second seven cows came up, and I think this is where the children's song came from. Old McPharaoh had a farm. <laughs> E-I-E-I-O. And on that farm, he had seven cows. Actually, I think the word on the streets is he didn't have a farm. He was actually in denial. <laughs> so... There you go. Yeah. Ah, never mind. <laughs> never mind. We move on. The seven cows were thin, ugly and thin. The King James, old King James, calls them lean-fleshed. So you have the fat ones and the lean ones. You could call the first seven healthy, the second seven unhealthy. But then something weird happens. Verse 4. The ugly and gaunt cows, or thin ones, ate up the seven sleek and fat cows, and then Pharaoh awoke. Now, the language here is interesting because the language in the Hebrew means that the thin cows, almost skeletal-looking, all of a sudden went, or <laughs> and they started dismembering and chewing up the fat ones, and in things contrary to nature and everything else that seems to be normal, the thin, weak, ugly-looking ones became like cannibal cows. And they were like, ah, 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 ah. and Pharaoh's like, no, this is weird. And the thin ones ate up the fat ones. And suddenly Pharaoh awoke and went, yikes. Have you ever awoke from a dream and... You were just like right on the edge of reality in the dream world one time. One of my boys had a dream and he came running down the hallway and jumped on top of me. He was so frightened. He was like, ah, daddy, daddy, daddy. And then I woke up and I was like, ah. <laughs> anyway. And then as often happens, you know, he saw this weird thing happen and then he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. Sometimes if I have a scary dream, I was kind of like, okay, I got to change the subject here because whew, I don't want to go back to, you ever have the dreams like, I don't want to go back to sleep right now. Those scary cows in there. <laughs> Lord, I'm going to try to think of something else. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time and behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk and they were plump and good. And behold, seven ears thin and scorched by the east wind sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. I don't know if this is like children of the corn or what's going on here. But anyway, I don't know what it looked like. But anyway, the, the thin ones again get the plump ones. And they, the seven plump ones, they got swallowed up. And Pharaoh awoke and behold, it was his dream. And Pharaoh was, you know, he was freaked out and, Remember I told you that in Egyptian thought, um, they believed that the dream world was a real world. It was a, another world, but it had reality to it. 
And since the Pharaoh was supposed to be some sort of God, they said he lived on the edges of both worlds, or he lived kind of in these realms. And so he's had a, kind of a two-part nightmare here, and God's going to use it. Now it came about in the morning that his spirit was troubled, Pharaoh's was, so he sent and called for the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. They came in their pajamas, apparently. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Now Pharaoh was rocked by his dreams, and they had striking similarities, and they were weird, and they had some sort of portent or pretense of the future, or however you want to say it. it was, he, he saw some message in there, and so he quickly wanted to know. Put the coffee on, boys. We're going to talk about the dreams I had last night, right? So all the magicians and all the so-called wise men come in, and they can't interpret the dream. Now, do the dreams seem that complicated? Don't you think that someone at the breakfast table, as they pass the cinnamon rolls around, would have said, all right, Pharaoh, here's what I think your dream means. The, the crazy cannibal cows are this. The wicked ears of grain are this, okay? Okay. But I don't know. I don't know if anybody ventured a guess. I don't know if anybody just tried to sell what they had to say. Or as one writer put it, maybe some of them were afraid of what the meaning might be and that he would take it as bad news. You know, there's another author I was reading this week who said that maybe God just cause their mind to blank because when you look at the dream and you see what's going on here you could think that they could come up with some sort of interpretation this is not like nebuchadnezzar's dream where he told the wise men i'm not going to tell you the dream you're going to tell me what i dreamt and what it means and the wise men were like come on nebby nobody's ever been asked none of the wise guys have ever been asked to do something like this this is too hard well here you have cows and grain Swallowed up. Sevens. Come on. I mean, you would think these guys who are professionals would know. And the frantic Pharaoh was dumbfounded. The wise men around him were dumbfounded. And the cupbearer decided, ah, I got an idea. So the chief cupbearer spoke to the Pharaoh, verse 9, and he said, I would make mention today of my own offenses. Now, I think it's the NIV or ESV. It says, I remember my offenses today. Now, this may be a way of humbly entering into the conversation as he was watching from the side. This could be a way of saying he remembers his offenses against or including Joseph. Because two years before, he had said to Joseph, I will not forget you. I will remember you. But now, he sees a convenient moment. And uh, he decides that he'll tread carefully, but... Now he remembers Joseph, apparently when it's convenient for him. Have you ever noticed that people tend to do that when it works for them? So Pharaoh was furious with his servants. Now the, the chief uh, cupbearer is talking. And he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker. As I read the way that this is put, I almost wonder if it's a different Pharaoh, but I'll, I'll just leave that to you. And we had a dream on the same night, and he and I, each of us, dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now, a Hebrew, Hebrew youth was with us there, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard, and we related them to him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one he interpreted according to his own dream. And it came about that just as he had interpreted for us, so it happened. So he restored me in my office, but he hanged him. So... 
Uh, here's the quick uh, synopsis of what happened a couple of years ago, a couple of dreams. Both of the interpretations by the Hebrew young man came to pass. He leaves out some of the more unseemly details, like he was dejected. Nobody, was will nobody could interpret his dreams. He was downtrodden. Joseph had to say, what's wrong, boys? He offered to interpret. Those little details are left out. We're pretty good at telling stories in our favor, aren't we? You won't believe how big that fish was. How big was it? Oh. Yeah. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph. So all of a sudden now, there's this young Hebrew guy, and he can interpret. So he called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon, verse 14. And when he had shaved himself, which was the way that the Egyptians approached life, the Hebrews, of course, wore beards and grew up their facial hair. The Egyptians were clean-shaven, and he changed his clothes, and he came to Pharaoh. You want to talk about a sudden reversal of fortune? Staggering right? Here you are in the dungeon. He's got some sort of leadership role, but this can't be the prettiest place to try to exist and live. And all of a sudden, word comes down, hey, the Pharaoh wants to see you. Get cleaned up. Here's some old spice. We're going to give you a little shower. And off to the Pharaoh you go. Now Joseph is right before one of the most powerful men in all the world with a God-given ability that the Pharaoh desperately needs. We can see moments in our lives like this, right? We, we get cleaned up, we get an opportunity, and then we have to ask ourselves a question. Will I act the same in the presence of the Pharaoh as I would act in the presence of a fellow prisoner? Would I give the same credit to God, to the Pharaoh, as I would to a fellow prisoner? Charles Colson writes a book, and he was talking about life in the White House, and he said when he would do tours of the White House, he would take people into various rooms and they would be terribly impressed. And he said if he really wanted to impress them or really wanted to kind of just get them to melt to whatever their agenda was, he would take them to the Oval Office. And they would get special, you know, I think it was the gold, uh, what do you call it, the little cuffs when you get, whatever they're called. Right, they would just spoil you. And he said, he found that people would tend to melt and they would kind of change their tune in the Oval Office. And he said, never more so than religious people that walked in there. He said, they seemed to kind of just cave and, and melt. Well, that was not Joseph. And I pray that that's not you and me. I pray that whoever we're dealing with will be obviously people who are respectful to whatever office one holds, but we will never hold back truth or lack to give credit to our God and our Lord. And so here's Joseph, well-built, good-looking, clean-shaven, probably smells good, and he comes before the Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh quickly gets down to business. He said to Joseph, I've had a dream, but no one can interpret it, verse 15, and I've heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh, saying, Well, <laughs> you've heard right, Pharaoh. <laughs> yes, it's true. Here's my business card. I've got a video out on YouTube of just how you do such a thing. You see, I've got it perfected now. No, he didn't do any of that, did he? You know, when someone gives us a little bit of praise, it reveals kind of what we're about, doesn't it? <laughs> Have you ever had a moment where someone was, <laughs> right? And you were just, yeah, that's right. Just keep it coming. Yeah, it's all true. <laughs> Doesn't take much. 
So when Pharaoh said, hey, I've heard this about you. You've got this great ability. Joseph said, it's not in me. Now, if you're thinking just, you know, if you're a real practical, uh, pragmatic person, you're like, this is the opportunity of a lifetime. The Pharaoh needs me. I could set my career path. This is my chance. Out of the dungeon. Now, he didn't know everything to expect, but the first thing that he says after he gets buttered up by the Pharaoh is, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. If you're interested in Hebrew, he says, Ha Elohim, the God. See, the Egyptians thought Pharaoh was a God. And Joseph says, the God will give the interpretation. Where does he live? In a polytheistic, idolatrous land where everything seems to be a God and a goddess, including the Pharaoh. And what does Joseph say? Oh, no, 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 no. Whatever you've heard about me, it's not in me. In fact, the word used is bilade in Hebrew, a single word of self-deprecation. In essence, what Joseph said is, not me, God. Not me, God. Now, I know sometimes when athletes get interviewed and interviewers want to talk about the X's and O's of the game, so what did you really do to make that play and how did it really go? And Well, first of all, I want to give Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, the credit because without him, I, okay, yeah, 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 but, but when you threw that pass, right? And they want to brush by it. But when we have a platform to give God praise, we should, right? Not obnoxiously, but Joseph said, look, not me, ha Elohim. He will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. In Genesis 40, verse 8, when Joseph was talking to fellow prisoners, he said, do not interpretations belong to, to God? Tell it to me, please. Joseph was the same man before a prisoner as he was before the Pharaoh. Am I? Are you? Are we impressed by people's you know, position so much so that we change? Can we, can we turn on a dime from who we say we are in one context to another? I know sometimes we try to earn the right to be heard in certain places. I'm not, I'm not uh, making fun of that or brushing that aside. But Joseph's words in the NIV are, I cannot do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Joseph was asserting that the true God was above all the false gods of Egypt, including the Pharaoh, a point God himself will drive home at least 10 times in the next book, which is the book of Exodus. Amen? So Joseph's words are almost prophetic in a sense. And so Joseph was placing his faith in God. I hope that we can be consistent. This is what struck me, that um, Joseph was a consistent man. He was not ashamed of the gospel. Look, if we're going to come into church and say this is who we are, but we can't go to a restaurant and say this is who I am, or if I can't be you know, uh, out in a hobby or coaching somewhere and say I'm a Christian, if we're you know, a secret agent Christian, hopefully people don't have to guess who you are. And I think a lot of what Joseph earned was through his work ethic and his character. Look, if a Christian does want to win the right to be heard, then God's favor will be upon the believer, but not if the believer is not doing what they're supposed to do. Amen? So I think work ethic and character say a lot. Now, Pharaoh, 
spoke to Joseph and he said, in my dream, behold, I was standing on the bank of the Nile and I was gonna tell what he dreamed and behold, seven cows, fat and sleek, 18 came up out of the Nile. They grazed in the marsh grass, all what he had dreamed and lo, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such as I had never seen for ugliness in all the land of Egypt. <laughs> That's a little addition. These are the ugliest cows I've ever seen. And the lean and ugly cows ate up the first seven fat cows. Yet when they had devoured them, it could not be detected that they had devoured them, for they were just as ugly as before. <laughs> Isn't that great? They ate them up, you would think something would have happened, like they would have got a little plumper or something. Nothing. They were scary, ugly, red, glowy eyes. <laughs> no, I just added that. And he says, then I awoke. I saw also in my dream, behold, seven ears. Dream number two, full and good came up on a single stalk, and lo, seven ears withered, thin, and scorched by the east wind sprouted, out, sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed the seven good ears. Then I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me, these guys right here in their pajamas. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. If Pharaoh is a god, why is he so helpless right now? If he's a god, why can't he just provide the, his own interpretation? Why does he need some Hebrew guy from jail? Interesting. Walter Brueggemann explains, the future of Egypt does not depend on Pharaoh. He does not get to decide. In fact, Pharaoh is irrelevant and marginal to the future of the kingdom. Joseph has calmly announced to the Lord of Egypt that the future is out of his hands. Interesting. Turn for a moment to Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45. So when you look at world leaders and rulers and things that they do, ultimately God is sovereign over even them and decisions that they make, and God will weave it together towards his ultimate goal. Isaiah 45, interesting address to Cyrus, king of Persia, and here's what it says. Isaiah 45, it's in a great section about God comparing himself to the false gods of the nations, and he says these words. Isaiah 45, 4. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen, I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor. Though you have not known me, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising, of the setting, uh, from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Drip down, O heavens, from above. Let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up and salvation bear fruit. And righteousness spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. If you go back to Genesis, you know that God's greater purpose What's going on here is that he is setting things up so that Israel can be cared for. The family of Joseph will end up coming to Egypt so that the line can be protected and the Messiah of the world can be born. God is doing what he's doing. He has put these dreams in the heart of Joseph, in the heart of the cupbearer and the baker, and in the heart of Pharaoh. When Jesus was standing before Pilate, Pilate was a little surprised at his responses, and he said, don't you know 
I have the authority to crucify you or the authority to release you. Don't you understand? And Jesus said, you would have no authority unless it first been given to you from above. But he who handed me over to you has the greater sin. Jesus acknowledged, yeah, Pilate, you have some authority, but your authority is only under the sovereignty of God, and it's limited. And of course, I shared with you in a message recently that Pharaoh committed suicide after that time with Jesus, just a, it seems a few years afterwards. Now Joseph, verse 25, back in Genesis 41, said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told Pharaoh to Pharaoh what he is about to do. I want you to notice that Joseph's interpretation is God-centered. He said, it's not in me, it's God. Now he says, God has told you, Pharaoh, what he is about to do, God-centered. The seven good cows are seven years. The seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one and the same. Can you imagine if you're a wise man sitting by, shoot, I wish I would have known that. Sounds so easy now, doesn't it? <laughs> Talking about it. What does it mean? I don't know. What do you know? so simple the seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years the seven thin ears scorched by the east wind shall be seven years of famine it is as i have spoken to pharaoh god has shown to pharaoh god has done it what he is about to do behold seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of egypt represented by the seven plump and after them seven years of famine will come represented by the seven thin and all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will ravage the land. So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of the subsequent famine, for it will be very severe. Now as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by who? God and God. Every time you see this, it's Ha Elohim, the God, the God, the God, not your gods, not you, the God will quickly bring it to pass. As Pharaoh pondered the interpretation, Joseph now presents a plan. He says, and now let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise. I don't know if he peeked over at the wise men. <laughs> and set him over the land of Egypt. A man who is discerning and wise is the model of a Proverbs man or woman. Here are the reasons the Proverbs were written. To know wisdom and instruction. To discern the sayings of understanding to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. That's Proverbs 1, 1 through 5. Look for a wise man. If you are hiring, if you're an owner of a company, if you are a manager, listen to these uh, uh, descriptions of a man discerning and wise <clears throat> let pharaoh take action you're going to want a man of action to appoint overseers in charge of the land 34 let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of egypt in the seven years of abundance then let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain for food in the cities under pharaoh's authority let them guard it guard it let the food become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which will occur in the land of Egypt. Can you imagine being some of the wise men around? Shoot, this guy's smart. So, so the land may not perish during the famine. Now the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his servants. They're all nodding their heads. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this? And whom is what? 
A divine spirit? Wait a minute. I thought Pharaoh was the one with the divine spirit. Hold on. ESV New King James says, in whom is the spirit of God. I was reading James Montgomery Boyce this week, and he said this is the first mention in the Bible of the work of the Holy Spirit, if this is the best way to interpret this, that a pharaoh, a pagan, sees the spirit of God in a man or a woman of God. Do you think that pagans notice that you're a Christian? Do you think that they can notice when you, the favor of God rests upon you? Do, th- do you think that they can notice by your responses? Did you guys see the story of the guy that was on the plane? If you watch Fox News, you saw it about 7,000 times. Anyway, and this woman is given the business to this Christian guy because he just said he was visiting D.C. It was tied to the inauguration, as I remember. And basically, he, he was just there to celebrate democracy, is what he said. And she went off. And she just started giving him the business. And he sat there and took it. And then they, they kicked her and her husband off the plane. <laughs> and it was so funny because her husband's looking down the whole time while she's going on and on and on. You feel bad for him. And anyway, they get kicked off the plane. They interviewed the guy, and he said, he goes, I don't know what her problem was. He goes, I was just sitting there. She asked me a question. I responded. He goes, all I was trying to do the whole time she was talking to me is show her the love of Jesus. And I'm like, man, can you imagine? You're up against the window in a plane. (laughs) This woman's giving you the third degree. You're like, whoa. Well, anyway, it turned out that uh, he was able to give witness to his Christian faith and She was given the business, apparently, to everybody that would listen to her or even that wouldn't. The brilliance of Joseph's advice is 20% times seven. uh, Call it a a 20 times seven years savings plan was uh, obvious to all of them. He would decentralize the stored grain, making it easy to distribute in times of famine. I don't think Joseph was doing self-promotion here, by the way. I think he was just coming up with a solution. It's good to have an interpretation, but it's also good to have a solution If you want to hire somebody, look for a man who is wise, discerning, a man of action, and a man who has solutions, right? If you hire somebody, you don't want to just hear about what the problem is or even the understanding of a matter, but how to solve it. And there was a lot at stake, not just for Egypt, but there was a lot at stake for Joseph himself and a lot at stake for the family he hadn't seen for 13 years because that family is going to face the famine as well. And Joseph is going to become an instrument for Almighty God. And God's working on so many levels that even Joseph can't see everything that's going on. And that's true of you and me, by the way. God's often working in areas and on levels that I don't see at all. And then sometimes I'm able to look back and say, wow, God is, I often say, God is, he just amazes me. So Pharaoh was unknowingly giving the true God praise by saying, hey, I see the spirit in him, and so forth. And I do ask the question quite often, can people see the spirit in me? I hope so. Can they see Christ in me, the hope of glory? Uh, Just a little bit from my notes. When a man or woman is touched and empowered by God, there will be an inevitable difference in their lives and their leadership. It would appear that most of Joseph's witness was in his integrity, his character, his work ethic, his leadership, and they all flowed from the favor of God. If you want a good Bible verse, 1 Samuel 2.30 is one to write down where God says, those who honor me, I will honor. If you honor God, he will end up honoring you. If you dishonor God, 
good luck. And so the mention of the Spirit of God is found in the book of Exodus in regard to Bezalel. He says, I filled him with the Spirit of God. And Colossians 1.27 says, Christ in us or in you, the hope of glory. Dr. Barnhouse said, the secret power, the secret of power is character, but the secret of character is God. You know, if you want to have a man or a woman who ultimately you can trust, it's because they answer to a higher source. Amen? So if I'm going to put somebody in charge as a steward over my stuff, I'm going to feel good about someone who's a committed Christian. The secret of power is character. The secret of character is God. And so the Pharaoh says, verse 40, you shall be over my house. And according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. And Joseph had to say, what? Really? Really? Do you think he had a couple flashbacks to that original dream at the breakfast table? Hey, it turns out yours are going to bow to mine, right? The family said, you're crazy. What are you talking about? And all of a sudden, all of Egypt is going to bow to a man who was a Hebrew slave. All the world, because Egypt becomes a type of the world. And in many of these verses, you start to see typology come, that all the world will bow. In fact, Joseph is in many ways a type of Jesus Christ, and the Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, and they will do it for a Jewish Messiah. Interesting. And so Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. Now Joseph has moved from slave to second in all of Egypt. Wow. He's now something like the prime minister. He has moved from the dungeon to the throne. A man who who once wore shackles now wears a signet ring. The man whose feet were once in fetters now steps where only kings can go. His exchange is coat of many colors, ripped and soaked with blood, for royal robes made of Egyptian fine linen. The man who once served in a dungeon is now served by those who considered him at one time the stench of the earth. I wonder if he had a couple of payback lists. Now that I'm number two, where's Potiphar's wife? Remember those false charges she cooked up against me? I think one of my first orders of business is going to be off! with her head. (laughs) But Joseph was not that kind of guy, was he? See, he could see that God was using all of this toward his ends. He now wears a necklace of gold around his neck instead of a chain as a slave. He who probably walked from his homeland as a slave now rides in the second chariot of Egypt. At 30 years of age, Joseph begins his reign Jesus himself began his public ministry about the age of 30, according to Luke 3.23. At 30, he's assumed control of one of the mightiest empires in the world. At 30, he's the second highest ruler of the world. Can you imagine this? That's a pretty big promotion. 30 years old. Wow. He's got it going on, but that was not Joseph. He was humble. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring 
from his hand and he put it on Joseph's hand. This ring bore Pharaoh's name in something called a cartouche, which is an oval. It gave Joseph Pharaoh-like authority. Get this, the Pharaoh takes his signet ring off, puts it on Joseph and says, you now have my authority. Whatever you press as an official document has my authority. Whatever you sign has my weight behind it. This ring is yours. Wow. He clothed him in the garments of fine linen, put a gold necklace around his neck, and he had him ride in the second chariot, and they proclaimed before him, bow the knee, and he set him over all the land of Egypt. Can you imagine? It was like being in limousines, you know, with open tops, and the announcers and the secret service running before you. <laughs> Joseph is here! Everybody in Egypt, bow the knee, Joseph. <laughs> Can you imagine being 30? Wow. I mean, his life has just changed incredibly. And I wonder how many times as Joseph rode in the chariot, he bowed his head and just said, oh my God, in the best of sense, oh my Lord, what you have done for me. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh named Joseph, that name, <laughs> 45. It actually is Zaphnepaniah, and gave him Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, or On, as his wife. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. Now, Joseph's new name is an Egyptian name, and we've gotten more light on this as we've understood Egyptian hieroglyphics. His name, here's some takes on the interpretation. His name, given to him by the Pharaoh, verse 45, Pharaoh named him, could mean abundance of life, revealer of secrets, God's word speaking life. F.B. Meyer interpreted this name as, get this, savior of the world. However, says Boyce, in the last generation or so, important work has been done in the area of Egyptian etymology. And this has suggested that the name Zephanith Pania should more accurately be translated, God speaks and he lives. Wow. Do you think the Pharaoh has come into some sort of contact with the living God through Joseph? Isn't that the goal of every Christian? People would know that God lives because I'm alive in Jesus Christ. If this is accurate, this is significant because it would mean that Pharaoh himself gave the name to Joseph and, of course, the name has great significance in terms of what it represents and what he's saying. Joseph also got a wife and notice her name is Asenath and she's the daughter of some priest, right? So let's just read a little bit more and I'll tell you about this. So Joseph was 30 years old um, when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. And during the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. So he gathered all the food, man of action, of these seven years, which occurred in the land of, its, of Egypt. He placed the food in the cities. He placed in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. Thus Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea until he stopped measuring it, or it was beyond measure. Apparently, it exceeded the one-fifth or 20 percent. Now, before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Asenath, her name means she who belongs to the goddess 
Nate or Neit, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore to him. Now, I'm reading from R. Kent Hughes, and he says, note, she was such of such high-born lineage, Joseph's Egyptian wife, that the Pharaoh sometimes chose wives from this family. The city of On, which is also known by the Greek name Heliopolis, or Heli Heliopolis, means literally sun city. Isn't that in Arizona? Anyway, no, that doesn't mean this one. It actually lies today about 10 miles northeast of Cairo and was the center of the worship of the sun god Ra. So get this. He's this bigwig. He dresses like an Egyptian. He may talk like an Egyptian. He's got the signet ring of Pharaoh. He rides in the number two chariot. He's got power. He even walks like an Egyptian. I mean... Now he gets an Egyptian wife who's the daughter of this prominent priest that probably oversees all kinds of uh, religious rites in Sun City. And do you see the possible problem? All of a sudden, Joseph's at the top of the world. He's layered in all this Egyptian prosperity. And what would his temptation be now? It might be harder to follow God in times of prosperity than it is in times of struggle. Would you agree? When we're challenged and we're hurting, you know, some people do run from God, but a lot of people, when they're in that situation, you got to rely upon God. God's your hope. He's your refuge. He's your strong tower. But now, when you're the number two in all of Egypt, and for that matter, all the world, now do you forget God? You got an Egyptian wife. She's her dad's some sort of pagan priest. Does Joseph lose his faith? Would Joseph's soul be in great peril at this moment? Does advancement in the world, Egypt, provide many trappings that people sometimes get blindsided by? It does. A novel written in the first century AD entitled Joseph and Asenath portrays Asenath as being converted to the worship of Yahweh. You almost wonder who won the battle. Which way shall we raise the children? In the Egyptian schools or in the Hebrew faith? What do we do now? That's why we're told not to be unequally yoked, right? So verse 51, Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God, what did he say? God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. Did Joseph forget God high up in Egypt? Nope. And he named the second Ephraim, or Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And just so you know, both names are Hebrew names. Joseph did not forget God. Because God had not forgotten Joseph. And Joseph names his children Manasseh. God has made me forget. Forgetting sometimes can be a blessing, can't it? God says, I will forgive their iniquity and their sins I will forget or I will remember no more. Jeremiah 31, 34. By the way, that's true of us. He doesn't remember our sins. He doesn't hold them against us. And Paul says in Philippians three thirteen, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. 
the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. There's a blessing in forgetting. God has made me forget all my trouble, 51, and God has made me fruitful. He's made me forget, and he's made me fruitful. And brothers and sisters, that's me. God has made me forget my past mistakes, and he's made me a very fruitful man. More fruit in my life than I could ever imagine today. And all because of a faithful God who has made me forget the old Michael, my past mistakes. Some of my friends, if they walked into this building and they had not seen me in the last 25 years, they would say, what? But you know what? God has made me forget all of that junk. In the best sense, he's made me forget. And he's made me a fruitful man, a blessed man. That's what God does. God is good. Amen? And I hope he's done this for you as well. These are Hebrew names, and I'm confident he has if you're a believer tonight. And when the seven years of plenty, which had been in the land of Egypt, came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, let me park here for a second. I want to just say this. You may be in the middle of the 13 years right now. So I don't want to jump to conclusions and speak for you. But I'll say this, at some point, I think you'll be able to look back and say, God has made me forget and made me fruitful. Now, if you're in the middle of the 13 years, Joseph still held on, right? He still believed in God. He didn't give up his faith. But if you're in that tough sledding part, my heart goes out to you, but I'll just say this, hold on just like Joseph did, even when he didn't understand, even when wrongly accused. When the seven years of famine began to come, middle of 54, Joseph, just as Joseph had said, then there was famine in all the lands. But in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, and whatever he says to you, you shall do. Remember when Jesus is at the wedding of Cana of Galilee, and they're out of wine, and mom approaches, and she tells the attendants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. That's Mary's advice. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. That's the biblical advice. Whatever the Bible tells you to do, whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. There's no replacing obedience. And so this is the solution for our personal lives, our marriages, our families, our churches, our nation. Whatever he says to do, do it. Doesn't that sound simple? Oh, yeah. But quite challenging, isn't it? <laughs> and when the famine had spread, was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. And the people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. And as you can see the typology, all the world comes to get bread from Joseph. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger anymore. I am the bread that was sent down from heaven. If you will just come to me, if you will believe, if you will eat and drink, metaphorically speaking, take me in, believe on me, you will be saved. Everyone who thirsts, come. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? Isaiah 55, 2. And your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. 
Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercy shown to David. Jesus says, the fa- All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And Jesus says, Would you bow your hearts with me? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's find rest in our Lord tonight. Lord, we come thanking you that you're the bread of life and thanking you that you provide so richly in a broken world, in a world that could be easily compared to Egypt with idolatry and polytheism and all these false concepts and ideas. A man stood his ground, sold by his brothers. They acted like he was dead. They were jealous of him. That's why they did it. They sold him for 20 pieces of silver. They, it looked like he was as good as dead. And this Hebrew now has become really, in essence, the ruler of the world. And in many ways, there's typology, Lord, and we don't, want, we don't want to push it too far, but we do know this, that you have woven together a beautiful story, but it's not just a story. It happened to a man, a man who trusted you until the very end. And one day he's going to look up and he's going to see his family enter a room and they are forced to come because of a famine. And they're going to they're come and you're going to use all of this to reconcile him back to his family and to preserve the royal line to the Messiah. This story is our story because without a Joseph, there would be no Messiah. And we thank you for that, Lord. And we thank you that you were in control all along and that you're in control of our lives. And we want to bow before your majesty and pray that you'd renew our faith tonight. Strengthen our faith. Help us to hold on in lean times and trust you in the good times as well. And do it all for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.